Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Well, Desi, I'm just about ready to pop open that bag of chips I have on my <laughs> dining room table. Honestly, I was thinking this like a few weeks ago. The hardest thing about podcasting is that you can't eat during it. I know. It's awful. Because it's like, I really would love to just fucking snack while we're doing the show. I know. And you know <laughs> it's what? It's like really hard. It is really fucking hard not to eat during the show. Because wouldn't it be great to just have some of those chips right now? <sighs> one time we uh, tried we do to do for you? that. <laughs> one, time we, one time we did try to do that and we got yelled at. Because I was like sucking on the chip. Well, you, you were making a lot of mouth noises, but also I was Because like, I was trying to be quiet yes, and, and it, it ended was, up being more revolting. Was, <laughs> you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> You're probably eating chips right now. I know. It's really unfair. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway. Anyway, let's thank the people who contributed over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene this week. This week we had Sandra, Jamie, Kimberly... Mary Ellen, Sarah, Sarah, Heather, Laura, Karen, and that's it. Thank you guys so Thanks, much. Thanks, guys. Well, we had kind of like a heavier month of shows last month, yeah, I would say. I would say I mean, so. So I kind of wanted to do something lighter that we could definitely laugh at a bunch. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so I kind of looked around, and it definitely has some sad aspects to it, but I do feel like we can kind of sink our teeth into this one a bit and Ooh. kind of feel free to be like, what? Uh, <laughs> so I did like a little Google. We do have a really extensive document, but sometimes I still kind of just do searches for things. Yeah. And I came across the story of an actress named Marie McDonald. Now, I had heard of this actress before, but I wasn't exactly f- that familiar with her. But she has a wild story. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, two of the main sources I used for this article, um, in addition to like Reddit boards and stuff like that, were one was called Hollywood's Original Gone Girl. And that was by Joe McGovern in uh, Entertainment Weekly. And then, of course, like the Find a Death had like a really good entry on her because she has like a wild story. So of course it's a really hilarious um, page. So you should go check it out. Um, Marie McDonald was born Cora Marie Fry in Kentucky in 1923. Her mom Marie was a former Zigfield Follies girl and she definitely wanted to push her daughter in that direction. After her parents divorced, the mom and Marie moved to Yonkers, New York with her new stepfather. And at the age of 15, she began competing in beauty pageants. She was named the Queen of Coney Island. <laughs> I feel like that's like... What a title. I bet you there's been a lot of Queen of Coney Islands like since then, right? It seems like a kind of like a sort of like the, the girl who has sex or something like I in just, high school. I just feel like... <laughs> If you're the queen of Coney Island, I would hope that your tiara has like some kind of hot dog. Oh motif my god! On it. Like it's forks, yeah. And then there's a hot dog on it yeah, at the top. Exactly. Uh, she was also named Miss Yonkers and Miss Lowe's Paradise. <laughs> 
dude. <laughs> Sketchy name. So, sort of. Sh- did you ever do any beauty pageants when uh, you were young? No. Okay, look, I, you Jesus never know. Christ. I'm sorry, no. you lived in Florida. Although I wish I did. Okay. Believe me, when I was a kid, I would have died to do that. My, my mom didn't do anything. My for me. cousin was a beauty pageant winner. She was uh, Miss Mariana Islands. Oh. Yeah. That's good. In the 90s. Uh, so, shortly after she begins competing in these pageants, she drops out of school and starts modeling, eventually becoming Miss New York State as well in 1939. So at the age of 17, she kind of decides she wants to move more into acting and she gets a job being like a showgirl in a Broadway show. That's like her first sort of big thing. Now, obviously, the next move for her is that she wants to move to Hollywood and, you know, develop a career as a movie actress. So she kind of moves to L.A. She continues modeling here. And the Broadway kind of theater guy who hired her to be a showgirl in New York hires her to be a showgirl at a Sunset Boulevard nightclub. Now, Marie is actually a talented singer, and she eventually auditions for the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. And that was like a big, big band leader at that time. Uh, She gets the job in 1940, and she's on his radio show and performing with him and eventually performing with other big bands. He's the one who suggests that she change her last name from Fry to her mother's maiden name, McDonald, and she goes by Marie McDonald for the rest of her professional career. In 1942, she's put under contract by Universal for $75 a week and immediately appears in, like, movies and like minor little roles. Her big movie is an Abbott and Costello movie called Pardon My Sarong. She eventually kind of like her like gimmick or like the thing she sort of gets known as is uh, her nickname becomes the body because she has like a very voluptuous kind of curvy figure. Um, So she kind of gets that sort of um, nickname. Wasn't that like Elle McPherson was the body? Yeah. I feel like it's Definitely been used a bunch. Yeah. But that was one of hers. And it's kind of one of those things, like, I do have to admit, this is really petty of me, but I immediately, like, looked her pictures up. Of course. Because uh, I was like, let me see this body. And it's like, it's a good body, but it's like, it's not like, it's not like anyone else from that era had, like, a similar kind of body. Like, I don't know why she got it, but it was just her nickname. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It was like, why her? Right. Because everyone else looked like a great body, too. But that was her thing. So, whatever. Now, she eventually is dropped by Universal, and she signs with Paramount Pictures, and there she earns $100 a week, so she's kind of moving up. She's working in movies, but nothing major. And then in World War II, she becomes one of the most popular pinup girls, even posing for a United States military, military magazine called Yank. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know is short for Yankee, right? But that's a hilarious... Pin up, like, come on, it's, guys. It's like, a great name. It's that's a, a great that name. That is a hilarious porn, like, mag name. It's and perfect. I can't believe anyone else hasn't jumped on that one. Yeah. Yank. I love on. it. I loved it too. I, I, I laughed out loud when I. <laughs> I read this. I like looked around like, is anyone else seeing this? Like, um, okay. So she initially is fine with being called the body, but obviously she grows tired of the nickname and wants to be recognized more for her acting and singing talents. Her daughter in an interview in the Entertainment Weekly piece said, can you imagine being called that today? It would be just awful. But back then, calling a woman the body was apparently okay as a marketing tool. I don't think she liked it. In fact, I know she didn't. She was funny and very smart, and she knew it was creepy. Um, But as Rachel said, there was the body, like in the 90s. They did use that against a woman, or for a woman. Yeah. So it wasn't just creepy. Like, it it still was used very recently. Right. Uh, So she 
does screen test for a pretty big role, the lead role in a comedy called Born Yesterday. That starred Judy Holiday, and she she would go on to win an Oscar for that in 1951. So that was kind of like a big break lost. Right. Uh, and then Marilyn Monroe kind of comes around and just kind of takes over the kind of voluptuous blonde, you know, platinum blonde roles. So, you know, she kind of misses the boat there too. In 1950... Uh, she appears in a movie called Once a Thief and another movie called Hit Parade of 1951. And those are her final films for the next eight years. At that point, she decides she's going to focus on her singing career and kind of do some theater work as well. That doesn't mean she was out of the spotlight, though, because she definitely stayed there with her off-screen dramas, um, including the fact that she was married seven times. So her first two marriages were short and sort of uneventful, but after her second divorce, she had um, a relationship with mobster Bugsy Siegel, and that was kind of like um, brought her a little notoriety. Siegel eventually dumps her because of her chronic tardiness. <laughs> wait, wait. That that I love that that's what's unacceptable to him. I know, that was like, but at the same time, I kind of was like... He probably is really like strict about things, right? Like he's probably busy. He's like a control freak, probably. Yeah, and it probably fucking irritated him. Like I get the feeling that he had women for one reason, and that if they fucking fucked him, he had no trouble getting rid of them if they right. annoyed, if they annoyed him, right? Like, and getting someone else. Yeah, it was like it was meaning like he didn't have a connection to them or anything. Uh, her fur. Her third and fourth marriages were both to a millionaire shoe manufacturer named Harry Carl. Now, they married initially in 1947. Once they got married, McDonald suffered a, a few miscarriages, and they eventually go on to adopt two children, Denise and Harrison. They separate in August of 1954 and are eventually divorced. Shortly after, they announce that they're going to marry again. So oh. they're one of these couples, oh. like kind of like a Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor. Like they're real back and forth, and it's like a there's Dennis some more. Wilson. Right, there's more back and forth. So uh, in January of 1955, McDonald makes an announcement that the plans to remarry are off because she has discovered that she's allergic to Carl. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I honestly love that. I love just the statement. Sorry, I can't. I'm allergic to Carl. She like makes a statement. She goes on to say, when I'm with Harry, I get sick. When I'm away from him, I never get sick. <laughs> like That is just like, I don't know why that was so hilarious to that me. Because I would love to own someone that way. Burn. Yeah, it's sick. It's like, I love you, but no, it's right. not worth this. I'm allergic. Uh, yeah, to say you're allergic to someone is just hilarious. So despite her allergies, uh, they do remarry in June of 1955. And less than a year later, they separate again. Now, this time... I mean, it's like people who are lactose intolerant. They're always, yeah. <laughs> they're always fucking eating ice cream, even though, it, yeah. even though it gives them diarrhea. They're like, it's worth it for a day. Right. Uh Carl now is filing divorce initially, and he says that Marie has called, beat him and caused him grievous mental suffering. Uh, during this separation, however, McDonald does get pregnant again with their first biological child. Uh, Carl drops the divorce suit in June, and then in July, Marie files for divorce again, claiming uh, that he, I think that he was causing her mental grief or, or mental suffering. So they're just like going back and fucking forth. Um, their daughter, Tina, is born in September of 1956. And then while they're separated, McDonald starts dating actor Michael Wilding, who 
are Wilding, who you might know as one of Liz Taylor's husbands. He's one of her, whatever, she had eight husbands. Um, her daughter says in this Entertainment Weekly piece, her biggest problem was that she had terrible relationships with men, and there was always men chasing her, I guess for her looks, and she couldn't resist them. Her reputation started getting even sort of more bad, I guess. Um, she wasn't appear- appearing in movies, so she was only getting headlines for her sort of naughty behavior, I guess, <laughs> like the divorces and the relationships. She also had a DUI hit-and-run crash in Beverly Hills and another car accident in Benedict Canyon. Following her arrest for the hit-and-run, she was accused of kicking an LAPD officer in the groin and biting him, biting the thumb of another person who was trying to arrest her. So a real Zsa Zsa Gabor, <laughs> Beverly Hills cop run-in. Right. Um, so at this point, at this point, as I mentioned, her career is going nowhere. Her love life is a mess. I wrote, is this the friends theme? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but what happens next will put Marie in the spotlight in a major way. Okay. So here's Marie's story about what happened on January 4th, 1957. According to Marie, around midnight, uh, she hears a noise outside her bedroom window at her Encino home. Uh, at the time, a maid and a chauffeur, chauffeur, why can I say that word? Chauffeur? Yes. Chauffeur, in addition to her three children, are all sleeping in the home at the time. Marie looks outside her window to see what this noise is and sees, according to her, two swarthy men. So she sees two swarthy men banging at her gate. Like, I guess it's like one of those gates, you know, like, you know, like to the driveway, uh, like a metal gate that you have to open to pull your car in. One of them is holding a sawed off shotgun. Her dog actually runs toward the gate and the men scream at her that they're going to shoot the dog if she doesn't come out and let them in. So she claims to have asked the men when she goes to let them in what they wanted, and they said, we want your rings, your money, and your body. Then they tell Marie if she makes any noises or causes any trouble, they'll kill her children. They spend the next 30 minutes taking everything of value, mostly like her jewelry. Uh, Then they prepare a ransom note. They do the old, like, cutting out letters from a magazine and newspaper. Do they do that while they're doing the job? Yes. Wait a minute. So they're, like, in her house, like... In her house, are they like, this Ma'am, ransom. do you have any magazines? <laughs> Ma'am. Can I please have... You borrow your scissors. Do you have any scissors? No, not the child safety ones. <laughs> do you have a glue stick? That is, like, the most awkward Wasn't that, like, very ever. similar to... Like Patsy Ramsey, like John Bonet, they did the ransom note in the house because it was like her yellow legal pad. Like yeah. they could tell that they wrote it there or something. Right. Uh, anyway, so they leave the note in a mailbox and they take Marie in their car and leave. Uh, next, they drive into the desert and place Marie inside a small bungalow. There, they force her to drink whiskey and take some pills, which make her sleepy. She does claim that. Uh, she kept some of the pills in her cheek and yeah. removed them so they, they aren't as effective, supposedly. Now, back in L.A. at this time, Marie's mom gets a phone call from one of the men telling her that they have her daughter and that she shouldn't call the police if she wants her daughter to remain unharmed. I think they're trying to get a ransom of $30,000 was what like I saw one place, but I didn't see it elsewhere. Her mom, of course, immediately calls the police and they go to Marie's home and find the kids there safely, and they find the ransom note. The ransom note says she won't be hurt to get money. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all it says. 
me laugh because I was like, did they not, were they unable to find the right letters that they needed? Honestly, and they had to that's like, what I picture because I, I have a feeling, I mean, doing a collage takes a while. You got to search the magazines right. to find all the right letters. I imagine that would take a while. What if they're the wrong shape? They're, some of them are very small. Like, Right. You don't want to do something that's super tiny. Right. Right. I, that's what I'm <laughs> you saying. You need all headline letter like size. You need all headline letters and you might not have like uh yeah, you, a T. So they like when I heard that note initially, I was like, "That doesn't sound like a complete thought, even." Right. So they must have just really not been able to. They figure were it not out. prepared for no. this at all. So the the cops who come to the scene like inform the like the chief of police like this is a kidnapping yeah. or whatever at that point. At 2.10 a.m., the kidnappers call her ex-husband, Harry Carl, with the same message they gave the mom, um, but obviously the police had already been contacted at that point. Now, Marie eventually wakes up in the in the bungalow. As I said before, she said she didn't eat some, eat some of the pills, so maybe she wasn't completely knocked out. She's able to make a phone call because they're not in the room with her. Uh, at about 4 a.m., she calls a gossip columnist named Stop Harrison Carroll. <laughs> this is what she whispers to him, according to him. Tonight at my home, these two men came in and abducted me. I'm blindfolded and doped. I wish to God I knew where I was. I okay. love that she calls a gossip <laughs> columnist and not 911. Okay, so, I mean, if you haven't been thinking this already, this is a weird story, and it gets weirder. So... By the next morning, this is obviously headline news. She's famous enough that it's like a big story. Right. Uh, LAPD take it to like the next level. They make this their top priority. They set up roadblocks. They're checking cars leaving the city, like all this kind of stuff. Marie is left alone again in her, in her bungalow, and she makes two more phone calls to her boyfriend, Michael Wilding, and her business manager, Harold Plant. Uh, this is about 3 p.m., and the men actually bust in and find Marie on the phone, and they uh, have kind of like a little brawl. She claims that they kind of slapped her around, eventually subduing her, and put another blindfold on her, throw her in the back of the car, and she is driving in the car with them. She hears them saying that they have to get rid of her, but she doesn't know what that means. So while they're driving, they like pull another valuable ring off of her finger that she's wearing, and they eventually open the car, throw her out of the car, and she tumbles down a 25-foot embankment. Now, by the way, where she ends up being, they think, because of how she's found, is kind of near Coachella. Yeah. So that's about, whatever, two and a half hours outside of LA? Maybe yeah. two hours? two hours. So it's kind of past Palm Springs. Um, a truck driver named Richard Korn sees her about 11.15 p.m. that night. And he says that he sees a woman coming towards him like in his headlights and she's waving her arms on the highway and she's wearing what she wore when she was kidnapped, a bathrobe and slippers. He tells police she runs around to the side of the cab and there she is crying and carrying on hysterical. He says, well, she was pretty beaten up. Uh, she had a swollen lip. She had cracked teeth and bruises on her faces and leg. I'm sorry, face and legs. Um, so he drives her to the nearest hospital and in the back of his mind, he's like, is this the woman that I saw in the newspaper today? Like right. he kind of recognizes her, but it, he doesn't really say anything to her. On January 7th, after some time in the hospital and dealing with police and stuff like that, she's finally bought, brought back to her house and it's a real event. Like it made me think kind of like of Lana Turner when she's in the sun with her big sunglasses going to these court dates after her daughter killed Stompanato. Right. Uh, she comes home 
Obviously, the press are just everywhere taking pictures. She arrives in really large sunglasses. And or she talks to the press very briefly. She says, thank God I am safe with my children. There were times when I thought I would never see them again. Uh, now, her boyfriend, Michael Wilding, he says later on that she also said to him once they got inside, poor baby, a drink. I've had it. I've had it today. <laughs> That's what she said to... That's what she said to her boyfriend. I've had it today. And I was like, girl... And I was like, I want that on a t-shirt. t-shirt. I've had it today. Poor baby a drink. I've had it today. It's like, yeah, that's kind of an understatement. So two days after she returns home, this is really fucking weird. The LAPD put together a like Hollywood production level reenactment of her kidnapping starring her. No. Yes. No. And there's like a few pictures I found that were in Life magazine about this. So she basically recreates her abduction they film it, and also there's like a lot of uh, still photos of it. Dozens of reporters and photographers are there watching this whole thing and like taking pictures While for their newspaper. It. Yeah, they're like recreating her abduction with her in the starring role. That it's is like insane. the most insane Hollywood thing. One guy who was there, a reporter named James Bacon, he he puts like a little snarky headline together according to this Entertainment Weekly thing. Uh, he says police crew films the body snatchers because uh, her name was nickname was the body. So like that's a little funny. <laughs> well, I guess I don't know if it's a pun or what. In the article, he writes the movie had everything any Cecil B. DeMille epic ever had except camels. There were four scenes requiring six takes: a bedroom shot in an outdoor location, a, pr- a producer and a director who were both policemen. So policemen were like directing this whole thing. It wasn't like you had professional uh, Hollywood people doing it. So I'm sure it's really low budget and I would love to fucking see it because I'm yeah. sure it's hilarious. Now, as you might imagine, this had never been done before. A lot of people thought it was just another example of stars getting special treatment. The chief of detectives at the time was a man named Thad Brown and he was apparently like a big kind of star fucker schmoozer. Like he loved working in the Hollywood beat, like dealing with celebrities and stuff like that. He was like best friends. um, Oh God, I can't remember the guy's name, the dragnet guy. So he was like in the scene and he kind of liked it. Some think he kind of did it to get in with Marie. Like, sure. Um, I saw in that Entertainment Weekly article, they interviewed that Steve Hodel, who is like famous for his dad possibly being uh, the Black Dahlia murderer. He's kind of always in these old Hollywood stories. Mm -hmm. He pops up. He said their main motivation might have been what we call CYA, cover your ass, so that nothing in the McDonald case came back to bite them. So they were probably going above and beyond uh, just because of who she was. Now, that could also be because a lot of people at this time were starting to have suspicions about Marie's story. The first to go public with those doubts were her ex-husband, Harry Carl. He told a reporter, Marie is very sick, and I think she left the house of her own free will. The LAPD were also having doubts. There was a lot of discrepancies in her story, and some began wondering if it was just a publicity stunt on Marie's part. One cop was actually asked by a reporter um, if they were actively searching for McDonald's abductors, and he said, yeah, but not very hard. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. So it's kind of like OJ searching for the real killers. It's like, sure you are. Um, Now... Some of the things that stood out to people as red flags um, included the fact that she did claim she was sexually assaulted and there was no evidence of that. Like she did get medically examined. And we know that that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen, right. but it's one of a many things. Uh, the other thing was that 
as we talked about before, the kidnapper, kidnapper spent so much time in her home making the ransom note there. That's just an insane thing to do right. because the kids could have wake, woken up, the chauffeur could have, like anyone could have come in at that time. Like you want to get in and get out in that kind of situation. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, there was also like the fact that when that they would leave her alone with a phone. Right. Like that in and of itself is stupid. Like just pull the fucking phone out. And when she has access to the phone, she doesn't call the police. Like right. all of this stuff just starts adding up. And there's like a lot of little things like that. Um, and there's a lot of discrepancies in her story because she's changing things around now at this point as well. So when Marie is presented with some of these questions, she does what a lot of people do in this day and age that, kind of infuriates Rachel and me. Instead of owning up to anything, they kind of double down. Right. (laughs) And so she claims now that the kidnappers uh, wanted her to make the call, so she was doing it under duress. um, And that the reason she called the gossip columnist because it was the only, one of the only numbers she could remember, she had memorized, like... So they didn't direct her to uh, whatever. Yeah, whatever. It's not, you can try to make sense of it, but no, that's not going to make sense. That makes less sense. <laughs> so another weird thing that made her look like a huge liar was that her story was very similar to the plot of a novel that had come out in 1956 called The Fuzzy Pink Nightgown, which is a book Marie owned. <laughs> now, the story of that happens in this book, two men kidnap a famous blonde actress in her pajamas from her home. <laughs> Uh, It has a slight different ending because in the book, she ends up falling in love with one of her captors, whatever. This book is actually made into a movie in the summer of 1957 starring Jane Russell. And this Marie McDonald story is such a huge deal that they actually use that in the marketing of it. Like on the posters, it says police hint publicity hoax. So they actually use her story to market the movie, like which happens that summer. Incredible. Now, Marie is very upset that people think she's lying, and she kind of retreats into her home with her mom, her boyfriend, and her lawyer. Reporters claim that they're, they can hear her inside crying about how no one believes me. <laughs> I like the reporters are just camped out at this point, like listening in. Um, obviously, uh, the detectives want her to take a lie detector to test. Back then, that was definitely more of a standard thing, and now we know it's bullshit pretty much. Her her attorney at the time says that it was insulting uh, to ask his client that. Um, McDonald also responds to the whole... Her response to the whole affair at this point is, no woman would allow herself to be photographed with this shiner if it weren't real. Because she does have a picture taken with a black eye. Right. And it's like, that's not exactly true. Because her picture with a black eye is pretty glamorous still. Like, oh. Like, it's not exactly a bad photo. Right. Like, and I don't know. Now, despite this hoax frenzy that's kind of happening right now, the chief of police, William Parker, tries to kind of settle things down. He's like, you know, you shouldn't harass her. There's no evidence that this is a hoax. Um, but there's also no evidence <laughs> that, that, that it that happened. happened. 
Uh, two weeks after the abduction, she appears before a grand jury um, and she testifies there. Um, she says the reason for her discrepancy, na- her discrepancies now was the fact that she was in a state of shock when she made her initial statement in the hospital. So she's like, I'm glad that I can be here to clear up these so-called glaring discrepancies. And that's a quote. So they're basically trying to get an indictment of these two unknown assailants. And I'm not exactly sure how weird that is. Like, how do you indict two people when you don't have suspects? Right. So I kind of get the feeling that this whole thing was sort of pandering to her. Like, they just wanted to get it off the books, maybe, or something. I, I could be wrong. Maybe you can indict no suspects. Like, right. It just seems weird to me. But regardless, the case is... Um, the, the grand jury finds that there's insufficient evidence to issue charges. So the case is pretty much effectively closed. Marie is obviously shattered by this. She releases a statement saying, we will not rest until the man, the men who kidnapped me are brought to justice. Okay. Now, 14 months after the grand jury decision, uh, no momentum is going on in this case. Obviously, the police are like done with it. They don't fucking care. They know it's probably fake. Uh, but Marie is not letting go of this. Is the press kind of dying down uh, about it? Kind too? of, kind of. But it's still definitely something they'll hop right back on if there's a new update. Absolutely, and they get a new update. So she's now kind of touring the country singing, and she uh, calls the police saying that she now knows who was the mastermind behind her abduction. Ooh. She holds a press conference in her hotel room in Kentucky, where she was was at the time on her tour, and she revealed that she had made contact with the two guys who kidnapped her. Uh, she traveled to Vegas to meet them because they told her that they were going to tell her everything for $5,000. She says she gave the men $5,000 in exchange for the information uh, about who they were working for. And in this press conference, she said the person who had arranged her kidnapping was her estranged husband, Harry Carl. <gasps> she says that she confronted Carl with this, inf- I mean, Harry with this information, and he begged her not to say anything about it to the police. That's what she tells reporters. Now, Carl's back in Los Angeles, and he's like, uh, <laughs> no, that didn't fucking happen. He issues a statement saying, it's absurd and ridiculous, and I think it's in bad taste to get publicity through this method. I feel sorry for Marie. She needs a great deal of help. The LAPD uh, de- chief of detectives, Thad Brown, he's definitely like, okay, well, I need to look into this, uh, but why hadn't she ever sort of suspected him before? Like, right. Right? It seems like something she'd come up with, too. Um, but they're like, we'll talk to her when she gets back to Los Angeles. Now... A lot of people were suspicious about the timing of this bombshell because one day earlier, Carl had officially asked McDonald to grant him their second divorce because they still were married at this point, but they hadn't officially done it. So they were kind of suspicious about why she was doing this at that time. Like, was it to get a better divorce settlement? Like, was she trying to blackmail him in some way? Um, So... To the reporters, once again, she's like, I would never do such a thing. Uh, She's choking back sobs, um, and she tells them, in spite of everything, I love him, but I'm afraid of him. Oh, geez. (laughs) Um, Back in Los Angeles, Carl volunteers to take a lie detector test. He takes it, passes, and he's cleared of any wrongdoing in the kidnapping case. There's just no evidence. The next day, um, the police hold a press conference with Chief Parker And he announces that Marie has emotionally withdrawn her accusations. Uh, 
According a quote from her, just say that I am retracting the whole story. What I said is in conflict with the truth. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, she said that's what? her. She said that her accusation was in conflict. So with that's the truth. a really fancy way of saying I'm lying about this. Yeah, but I love that kind of turn of phrase. I mean, no, it's I love like, it. It's so good. So she did add to that, except that Mr. Carl told me he had something to do with it. So she's still kind of not letting it go. Uh, but I don't know what so she's doing. She's saying Carl still had something to do with it. He just wasn't the mastermind, right? But it's not. It's not a great. It's not a great defense. No. Um, Their divorce finally does go through later that month, and Marie does get a little boost for her career. She's next cast in the Jerry Lewis comedy called The Geisha Boy, and that's released in December of 1958, and it's kind of like a hit, a kind of little hit movie. Um, Now, she continues going through her marriages now uh, after this period. She begins dating George Capri, who was the owner of the Flamingo in Las Vegas, and she starts having like a lot of problems. She is taken to the hospital by Capri in June of 1958 after overdosing on sleeping pills while she was staying there. They get divorced um, in September of 1958. So very short marriage, like literally a few months. Wow. Um, in May of 1959, she marries a television exec- executive named Louis Bass. They marry in Vegas and get divorced 10 months later. She charges him with mental cruelty. Next up, in 1961, she marries a banker named Edward Callahan in Las Vegas. <laughs> They're divorced like a month later. Uh, it's actually annulled because he claims that she promised that she would um, convert to Roman Catholicism and have his babies. And, she, and so he accused her of fraud. I guess that's how you get an annulment. It's like a, right. you go into it in fraudulent uh, circumstances. Right. She accuses him of things, too, saying that he committed adultery and borrowed money from her and never paid her back. And uh, so, yeah. So next up, she does get another kind of big movie, and that is a 1963 movie called Promises, Promises that stars Jane Mansfield. And uh, I'm going to go into this movie a little bit because it kind of has a historical distinction. (laughs) Okay. This is the first like sound picture uh that features a mainstream star that has nude scenes. Really? Yeah. No, in America. In America. In America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this movie stars James Mansfield and her husband, Mickey Hargitay. Um, and yeah, there's like, it's real nude scenes, by the way. I looked yeah. at the picture. She's topless in it. So I Jane mean, is. Jane is, yeah. Uh, initially, this role was going to go to Mamie Van Doren, but she backs out and they give it to Marie. So, uh, yeah, it's like all the Marilyn Monroe wannabes <laughs> were in this movie right. at some point or the other. So it's kind of a tense uh, set. Now, uh, Marie ends up marrying um, Donald Taylor, who's like a producer of the movie. And at the same time, her and Mansfield don't get along. And Mansfield is having an affair with the director, uh, Tommy Noon. So it's like a really tense set. And like they're both kind of attention hogs. So I think uh, Marie doesn't like that she's getting so much attention from the director because she's fucking him, basically. I mean, it's a classic Hollywood conundrum. So yeah, this is like a pretty big movie. It has like a high profile, but it doesn't really help her. It does help Jane Mansfield. She gets a big Playboy like spread after that. And that uh, kind of makes her career, but nothing for Marie really uh, at that point. But she does get a husband out of it named Donald Taylor. Well, that's nice. Uh, yeah. So um, at some point in 1963, 
she's in Australia and she disappears from a psychiatric hospital that she's checked in to there for some reason. She's eventually found, and her statement about it all is, when they came around passing out heavy sedation, I did what any red-blooded American would do. I took off. I wasn't going to let them turn me into a walking zombie like the rest of the people there. Uh, 1963 continues being horrible for her. She is arrested and convicted for forging prescriptions for Percodan, and she's put on three years probation. Then she has uh, a hemorrhoid operation. Um, (laughs) She also has another operation the year before, which is um, for ulcers, and a large amount of her stomach is actually removed due to the ulcers and how bad they were. So she's not in really great shape, and like these are horrible surgeries. Um, at some point she says, if I hadn't had such a wonderful surgeon, I'd be dead. Meaning the operation was really difficult and hard recovery. On October 21st, 1965, McDonald's husband, Donald Taylor walks into her body, uh, her bathroom and finds her body slumped over her dressing table, uh, with pill bottles strewn everywhere. Uh, she's dead, basically, of an accidental or an overdose at this point. They don't know what 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 the circumstances are. She he goes to the press and makes a statement saying that Marie was in good spirit. She was happy as a lark because she had been starting a new cosmetic enterprise that they were going to be launching soon. On October thirtieth, the coroner report comes back and they do think that her death was an uh, accidental drug intoxication. It wasn't. Uh, she didn't take her own life. It was just definitely an accident. But the weird thing is, three months later, her husband is found on January 3rd, 1966, and he has taken an intentional overdose of Secanol. So he kills, he does kill himself three months later. Wow. Yeah. He leaves um, a suicide note. So that's obviously how they kind of deduce that. Uh, one of the notes is addressed to his business partner and Marie McDonald Inc. And he says, please go on with the cosmetics business. It was Marie's fervent desire to give women a product that would do them some good at a reasonable price. That's kind of sweet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, her dad actually um, shoots himself uh, like I think a year later. Her Marie's, her, Marie's dad also kills he, himself with a gun whoa. like in Florida. So it's just like a series of tragic deaths. Yeah. Okay. Now I have an interesting little side story that's related to this. So McDonald, Marie McDonald has three surviving children, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and those her their father is Harry Carl. At this point, Harry Carl has remarried to actress Debbie Reynolds. Oh. So The day that Marie died, October 21st, 1965, was also the ninth birthday of Carrie Fisher. Now, this is according to um, their daughter, Tina Diamond. She says uh, that, here's a quote from her. There was yellow police tape all over my house when out of nowhere, Debbie Reynolds pulls up driving this green Rolls Royce. Uh, And Debbie said to me, call me mom, and whizzed me off to Carrie's birthday party. It was so bizarre. I didn't even know what death was, and suddenly I was at a birthday party. So she's like taken out of her mom's house the day she died and taken to Carrie Fisher's birthday party. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Now, here's a quote from one of Carrie Fisher's uh, books. And there's a lot of questions I have about this quote because it's weird, but I'll, I'll just say it to you. 
So this is her take on that day. Carrie kind of. Fisher. Carrie Fisher. She's like, so now there are three children left. What should we do with them? This is like her talking like her mom. I know. Let's send them to Harry and Debbie. Now, Debbie is told that one of the children should be institutionalized, but my mother is a good person, much like Sarah Palin, only smarter. And she says, absolutely not. We'll put her in Carrie's room. <laughs> Sorry. I guess Tina had some, maybe some kind of behavioral issues. Uh, but it's, I don't, I didn't find any information on that, but that's from one of Carrie Fisher's books. Wow. So in her opinion, her mom is sticking like a girl with behavior issues in her room. Uh, uh, so that's like her initial impression. Now they do share a bedroom. According to Tina Diamond, I was sleeping in a pullout bed under Carrie's bed and we shared a bedroom for many years. It was a monster house, very modern, this big white marble stone cold house, Todd, who is uh, Debbie's uh, son, was in the bedroom next to us. Carrie and I went to the same school and were in the same grade. We were rivals at times. We would fight and we would make up. Uh, she also says this weird story about George Carlin that he would come over a lot and play spin the bottle with the two teenage girls. How old in a was closet he? <laughs> under the stairs. Uh, too old. He was an old pervert, says Tina Diamond. I mean, she alleges he'd probably be arrested today for the things he did with us. But back then, nobody looked at it twice. <laughs> that is a weird accusation, right? I mean, I don't think it's that crazy uh, that an old guy in what was this, the 70s or the 60s? Yeah. I mean, How- he must have been pretty young, like in his 20s, right? Yeah. But playing spin the bottle with teenagers? Grow up. Yeah, it's kind of gross. Yeah, that's gross. So, I mean, this is her allegation. It's, there's no proof of it. Uh, but that's I'm just telling you what she said. So they also end up spending their high school years being tutored in Las Vegas casinos because Debbie was like in a show for an like, extended period there. Mm-hmm. So Tina says, our recess would be Circus Circus. <laughs> that's where they would go for a recess. That sounds circus, so circus. fun. Yeah. And she's like, it wasn't the greatest education, but you could also say, I got a better education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would think that'd be really fun. Like, totally. that's a period of Vegas that I'm always really into. Like, that 60s period. Absolutely. It sounds like the best Vegas period. Okay. So, eventually, Debbie Reynolds and Harry Carl get divorced. There's a big story about this in her, um, in the documentary that came out in 2016, Bright Lights. Like, he basically had huge gambling problem and kind of financially ruined Debbie Reynolds. Um, she claims that she had to live in a Cadillac after he like took all her money. So it was a bad thing. Uh, she basically then is leaving the house with her two bio kids, Todd and Carrie and moving to New York. Tina says one morning I woke up and they were all packing to go to New York. Carrie said, we're going to New York. And she started to cry and she took the ring off her finger and put it on my finger and gave me a hug and a kiss. Nobody was watching me. I had no supervision. I became a wild child. I went crazy. Who wouldn't at 16? Um, And yeah, she's kind of basically abandoned at this point because her dad's a fucking loser. Um, Now, in this, uh, the the Gone Girl uh, article I mentioned earlier, she has some other interesting quotes about her mom that I'm just going to end on. Uh, She does admit that Marie had like a turbulent reputation. Uh, She said she was a wild woman Uh, that I was aware of. It was an extravagant life. I rode a horse to school in the morning. (laughs) Sorry. That's like a crazy detail. Marie would smuggle firecrackers into our pants when we were kids so that she could light them (laughs) off in the yard. The police would always come, but they'd just stand there and watch. She loved firework shows. Now, Marie 
does I mean, sorry, Tina does not think Marie was lying about this really? kidnapping. Yeah. She goes along with that thing that Marie said earlier. Uh, Tina is quoted as saying, if she did it for publicity, how did she end up with the bruises and knocked out teeth? That's she was, what I was wondering. She was way too vain for that, but did she beat herself up? No way my mother would do that. But then uh, she also says that at some point she did know the name of a man who said that he might know more. She said he was a young guy, obviously dating my mother, and he lived with us for a while. He always had handcuffs with him, and he was such a creep. He ended up marrying some wealthy woman, of course, and being a big shot. I'm sure he knows a lot. So, I mean, it sounds like that could be, maybe if she did it as a hoax, someone helped her do it. Do you know what I mean? Right. So it's like maybe that person slapped her around. So you think it's a hoax? I do think it's a hoax. Yeah. You don't think it's a hoax? I mean, I'm like pretty sure it's a hoax, but the whole her getting beaten up stuff. But she wasn't that, like it was pretty superficial kind of stuff. Yeah. Also, why they never got the money. Right. I don't know. I mean, is this possible they just were like, fuck it, let's bail. We have the jewelry and that's enough. Yeah. It was too hot to keep her. Yeah. I just think her, her behavior was suspicious. Yes, her behavior was suspicious, definitely. Um, and then why did she try to go after the husband, the ex-husband, or the husband, I guess, still? Right. Um, I don't know. So, yeah, that's the story. Wow. I had <laughs> never heard that before. I know. When I saw it, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, And then I saw the Carrie Fisher stuff, too, and I was like, that's wild. I like, love that connection. Yeah, it's a weird connection. Yeah. I do feel like we could do like a Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds episode because yeah. there's so much uh, crazy stuff there. Yeah, and I love both of them. Yeah, me too. So, yeah, that's the Marie McDonald story. Cool. I was laughing at the title, the, Gone Gr- the original Gone Girl, because I was like, well, it's not exactly. No. <laughs> That <laughs> it was, was kind really... of a stretch because when I saw that title, I was like, "Ooh, like this is crazy." Like, I mean, the Gone Girl in the book, Gone Girl, that's like a very elaborate, well put together. I actually reread the synopsis because I was, I was kind of like, "Am I forgetting something? Like, was it more similar to this?" And no. then obviously, I was like, "Wait, this is like way, way more elaborate and like insane of right. a story." Like, right. So, I don't know. Maybe they just wanted to kind of make it tied to something new. Yeah, they do that sometimes. But, um, yeah. So, there's lots of pictures of her her online. I would love to find that reenactment, but I could find just a few photos that were in Life magazine at the time. Yeah. But it is pretty funny just to see her (laughs) in those photos, like, reenacting out, reenacting her own crime. Yeah. Like, that is my dream, to be in a reenactment. Like, I would love to be in one of those videos. Oh, my God. I'm not, like, an actress, but, like... I just would love... I feel like I could do a reenactment. You could do a... No. I've seen Desi's acting before, and you would be fucking perfect to do a reenactment on Investigation They're not the greatest actors in those, usually. So I I feel like I could do it equally. I feel like I could do a good job at that, too. We could do it one together. Right. Like, we have to get more well-known. Right. I just don't don't know if those are union actors or not, because I'm a union actor. I'm sure they are, because those shows are... I mean, I'm sure there's shows that aren't. You think they're like mixed union and non-union actors? No, I bet you some shows it's non-union. But if they're a bigger show, I bet you it's union. Like an Unsolved Mysteries was on NBC. No, right. But like I want to do something for Investigation Discovery. That's my, um, that's my dream role. I, I don't know how it works, but I thought anything on TV had to be union. No? No, they have non-union stuff. But they have writers and stuff. Yeah. I bet you it, it could be a combination because they probably get special writers. Right. Right. So I just it can think be both. I think the actor. I think the acting for those shows is non-union. I could be totally wrong. 
Right. Well, I mean, I think you should leave the union and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Desi. That could be your big break. Then you could get back in the union. Right. Then I'd be like, see? See this? And they're just like, they hang up the phone. I genuinely want to be in a reenactment show with you. Like, I would fucking die. And I would love if, like, there's this case that I'll probably do at some point of, like, these old ladies who were, like, murderous women. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Maybe I'll do that next week. Maybe I'll do that next week. But we could be those ladies, and they could just put us in old makeup. Right. But do they do that much effort? I think they're just going to cast I'll do person. my own makeup. Yeah. I'll do our own <laughs> I'll put, special effects yeah. makeup. I'll just look at a YouTube tutorial. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have a friend who can help us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would love to do a read. That's like my life goal. Like yeah. that's my acting level that I would love yeah. to be. Like I would be thrilled. That would be like winning an Oscar for oh me to be in a reenactment. Oh my god. I would do it all the time. Totally. I'm like jealous of those people. I am too. And they're so funny. Like they are. They're hilarious. I always wonder like what they're if they're trying or if they know they're being funny, it's hard to tell sometimes. I fucking love it. It's so good. I'm gonna go so watch a show like that. I tonight. wanna let's investigate. The union status. Yeah. I'll join the union if we need to. Right. (laughs) Anything for my career as a reenactor. Please. I think this should be our next goal is to get on a reenactment show. Well, I feel like we'd be like a very special guest. I agree. We have a little bit of a podcast following. It would be like, oh, a little bonus. They could kind of, we could be like my dream is to always have been and introducing. Desi Jettikin as the woman who got murdered. <laughs> like, yeah. I want a special bill. Like. I definitely want to, like, fall down some stairs dramatically. Right. Or chase or yell at someone and right. shut the door. And yeah. that was the murderer. <laughs> it was, like, my close call. Yeah. There's so many good things we could be. Like, or, like, right. imagine being in something as good as the bag of shit that was left <laughs> on the doorstep. Like, that would be my dream role. Right. Opening the door and picking up the bag and making a face. <laughs> Or being the woman in the bar who's getting seduced by the killer. Right. And like, I'm an old cougar. Right. (laughs) So I fall for it. Yeah. Because I'm so desperate for love. Oh, that's my dream role. Yes. To be a trash cougar in a bar. Oh, my God. Right before she's murdered. Oh, that's hot. It would be good. I would, I would, and then we could have the best part. We would be able to make gifts of ourselves. Yes. <laughs> wait, wait. We have to do this. Imagine having. I'm g- sure we have listeners who have worked on these shows before. Oh, yeah. If you've worked on these shows, please, please email us. us. I'll do it for free. I'll do it for free, too. I just want to really be. A, well, I can't work for Freeman in the union. Oh, God. This I'll do union. It, I'll do it for the lowest amount you can pay me. Right. I will. I fucking want to be on these shows yeah, so bad. I want to do it. Yeah. So yeah, definitely hire us. Yeah. We'll make gifts. <laughs> we'll promote the and fuck you, out of it. You guys can like all use our gifts on Twitter for, for reactions. reactions. <laughs> It'll be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Me as a cougar, like if I do like a sexy face, that could be a good gift to like a reply guy. Yeah. Like you're just like a gross sexy face. <laughs> I'm thinking it. I'm planning ahead. Or if you see a really bad take, just use one of us falling down the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> just reply that. There's so much we have going on. We you guys. To, I'm going to investigate this. Okay. Okay. All right. Bye. bye.